Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here in uh, the Red Centre in Central Australia and Aranda Country in Mbantua, Alice Springs. We're on 8 FM 100.5. Also going right across Australia on uh, Vast Channel 911, and of course coming through uh, the Karma app and via the Karma website at uh, www.karma.com.au. Uh, today is Tuesday. It's the fifth of uh, November, two thousand and nineteen. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling. Great to have your company on Strong Voices uh, once again. We're coming up on the show today. Uh, we're going to be hearing from uh, the University of Newcastle's. Professor of Indigenous Education and Research, uh, John Maynard, who recently delivered the uh, History Council of New South Wales annual history lecture. We're going to be bringing you uh, some of the things he had to say during that lecture where he was talking about uh, the movement of Aboriginal people to uh, Britain uh, from the late 18th century through to the 21st century uh, and bringing that from an Aboriginal context. So we're going to be hearing what he has to say about that uh, this morning. Uh, and we're also, as well, if you may have heard in our news, uh, going to be hearing from, uh, or hearing about, I should say, a recent uh, land handback with uh, traditionalists celebrating a handback of uh, Amaru Station land. So we're going to be heading and, and hearing about uh, what's happening out there in the Northern Territory's uh, sand over region, which uh, this section of land that was handed back was uh, just outside of uh, and Bloodwatch. So we're going to be hearing about that exciting development there as well and hearing from uh, Michael Little, who's a part of the, uh, the CLC delegates for the Eastern Sand over region. He's also a part of the Desert Knowledge Group. So he's going to be explaining a bit about what's happening, sort of the, the feel of some of the mob, and he's going to be heading down to that uh, handback ceremony, which is going to be taking place uh, tomorrow. Hey, mob, this is Patrick Johnson, and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. That's right, you are listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. Great to have your company this uh, Tuesday morning. Well, the University of Newcastle's uh, Professor of Indigenous Education and Research, John Maynard, recently delivered the History Council of New South Wales annual history, annual history lecture. Uh, during his speech, Professor Maynard explored the significant and largely missed movement of Aboriginal people to Britain from the late 18th century through to the 21st century from an Aboriginal context. The focus of my discussion is to explore the largely missing movement of Aboriginal people to Britain from the late 18th century through to the 21st century. My interest in this topic has developed out of more than 25 years of sustained, internationally focused, transnational studies and comparatives. 
The driver for all of my research undertakings has been searching for and examining areas of Aboriginal history that have either had minimal attention or been completely overlooked. Tonight I will reveal some of these missing stories and then briefly discuss five of the better known ventures of Aboriginal people to Britain. Numerous questions were raised on the presence of Aboriginal people in Britain historically. Why were they there? How did they get there? What were their experiences, observations and understandings? Did they come home? What were the differences in experiences of these Aboriginal travellers? What, if anything, did they say and record of their journeys? How did others record their visits? Some of these significant travellers include footballers, boxers, jockeys, circus performers, soldiers, athletes and, of course, political activists visiting Britain across more than 200 years. In an 1898 a newspaper account stated that two Queensland Aborigines, and I quote, were recently found in London, drink-sodden and penniless, the harried butts of the slum-born hoodlums. It was a matter, the paper said, of much wonder how this poor pair of darkies, as the word used, a man and a woman, almost ignorant of English, could possibly have achieved such a fate. Who were these people? How did they get to London? And what was their eventual fate? Of course, the questions remain unanswered on that particular one, but this is just that snippet of the story. Missionaries Daniel and Elizabeth Matthews, who had established the Maloga Mission in Victoria, went to England in, 18, in 1889, trying to arouse interest in Aboriginal issues. Two Aboriginal missionaries, Mr and Mrs Swift, accompanied the Matthews to Britain. And I quote, These dark-skinned evangelists are of a prepossessing appearance and have the manners of Europe and the accent of Londoners. Another connection to the Matthews is through the story of Nunga, Aboriginal girl, Mabel Pantoni. She was found by the Matthews during a visit to Adelaide. Mabel and her sister Emma were taken in by the missionaries after they gained consent from their father at Point Maclay to teach his girls to be the saviour of poor dark souls. The two Aboriginal girls accompanied the Matthews on the journey back to Melbourne. Mabel became a member of the Maloga Singing Quartet and they toured southeastern Victoria, their sweet voices blending admirably and they were a great success. Twelve months later, she'd left the Matthews to stay with her married brother and apparently did not return. Nearly 20 years later, in 1918, under the banner headline Intelligent Aborigines, she was living in a whirly on the Hindmarsh River where she had forsook fine dresses and an engaging company for the, to her, congenial solitude of the Aboriginal camp. The report stated that Mabel, prior to her marriage to an Indian hawker, had accompanied an Adelaide gentleman's family on a trip to Europe in a domestic servant capacity and thoroughly enjoyed her insight into high life in Great Britain and France and such an uncommon experience as an adventure in a hot air balloon. She had become homesick in Europe and she was sent back to South Australia. Clearly the European adventure and the life of a singing missionary did not in the end convince Mabel of the benefits of so-called civilisation. 
Another intriguing account from the 1895 London Colonies Exhibition states that Queen Victoria visited the Australian exhibit in London. It was noted that two young Aboriginal men from Gippsland were present and part of this Australian exhibit, and they were introduced to Queen Victoria. The newspaper said she chatted pleasantly with her sable subjects, Australian natives in the fullest sense. They were both well-educated, intelligent and good-humoured, in good humoured, but encouragingly shy in the presence of ladies. The Queen invited them to spend a day at Windsor Castle. And it was reported that these young men had a great time in London and, in fact, rarely turned up at the exhibition <laughs> as they were much sought after as musicians, good athletes, and they were especially smart with the mittens, boxing gloves. So these boys were pretty popular in their time in London. And again, another of these missing stories. Earlier this year, we had the passing of Bill Jonas, the former Aboriginal Social Justice Commissioner. Bill was a very good friend of mine for a long, a long period of, of my life, and a Warramai man himself. Very few people know that his grandfather, also Bill, was a well-known Aboriginal horseman and a decorated World War I veteran. Billy Jonas was the star rider of Thorpe McConville's famous buck riding show, Wild Australia. And Billy was described as a typical stockman, yet a showman to the core. He kept everything he owned spick and span. His saddle softened with dubbin and his boots shined to a mirror finish. He looked smart in spotless white breeches, laced on the side and wore a snow white shirt, contrasting against his dark skin and a brightly coloured necktie. This soft-voiced Aborigine knew how to make an entrance and had a delightful sense of humour. Billy Jonas's whip-cracking and horse-riding skill took him to England in 1911 to perform at the coronation of King George V. And he rode in the coronation procession for the king held at Westminster Abbey. He subsequently joined a buck-riding troupe known as the Wild Colonial Boys, performing across England before he returned to Australia with a cockney wife. Billy Janus met his wife Maud Stevens in London and they were married. Maud was a single mother when they met, but there was no acceptance of their marriage to Billy Janus. She received correspondence from her family you are always welcome in our house, but not that black bastard. This is the, the position that Billy Janus was in in marrying a white woman in that space. On returning to Australia with his young wife, Billy and his brother Jack enlisted to fight for their country in World War I. Jack was wounded on the Western Front, whilst Billy was mentioned in dispatches for his bravery and he was gassed. After the war, he returned to Australia and lived with his wife in the hills outside Allworth in Port Stephens. He died in 1947, aged 60, certainly suffering from the gassing from World War I for the remainder of his life. Another young Aboriginal man who visited Britain in 1884 was William Maynard, my grandfather's older stepbrother. Same Aboriginal mother, different white father. Records reveal that at the age of nine, William sailed from Gravesend on the Thames to Sydney 
via Melbourne with Elizabeth Pearce from Heaton in New South Wales. Miss Pearce, a spinster member of the Pearce family who owned the property where William and his stepbrothers, including my grandfather and sisters had been born, had adopted William as her own son and had raised him as such. She had taken him on a trip to Britain in 1884 and William was by all accounts an accomplished piano player. So that passage ticket up there is retained by the family, so coming back from England. And as I said, he was an accomplished piano player and a beautiful piano was bought in London and returned um, on the trip from Britain. Family memories passed down state that when young William first appeared on the upper deck of the vessel Serata, the captain roared, get that black bastard off this deck. Miss Pearce took to the captain and made it very clear to him, don't talk to my son in such a disgusting manner. During the 1970s and 1980s, several prominent Aboriginal activists, including Gary Foley, Bruce McGuinness, Burnham Burnham, Bobby Sachs, visited Great Britain. I'll speak in greater detail of Burnham Burnham later, but activist Gary Foley was employed for a short time as a journalist for the Australasian Express in 1976 in London and travelled widely, including visiting the grave of Karl Marx in North London. Now, as a reminder that these journeys and their significance continues into the 21st century, Roxley Foley, the son of Gary Foley, arrived in Britain from Germany in late 2016, expecting to deliver an invited lecture at Cambridge University on decolonising Australia. Instead, on arriving in England, Roxley found himself detained at the airport, questioned, and he was then locked up overnight before being deported back to Germany. He later delivered the lecture to Cambridge by Skype, nevertheless. So our visits across more than two centuries are a mixed bag. In some instances encouraged a journey to Britain and fated, others taken and discarded, and yet others seen as agitators to be locked up or locked out. Of course, Aboriginal visits to Britain go back to Bennelong, and I'll go on to some of the more well-known stories now that, that have been written about and spoken about before. To go back to Bennelong and his younger relative, Yemawarani, in 1792. They journeyed to Britain in the company of Governor Arthur Phillip at the end of his term as Governor of New South Wales. Philip had initially kidnapped a number of Aboriginal men at Port Jackson soon after arriving, so as to hopefully establish closer relations and gain a better understanding of local language and culture. Bannalong was one of these men. Bannalong and Yamawarani accompanied Philip to England, as well as four kangaroos and other peculiar animals, as noted. The two Aboriginal men were paraded as curiosities and the London newspapers made comments such as they appear to be a race totally incapable of civilisation. During their time in London, they visited St Paul's Cathedral, the Tower of London, went boating and swimming and visited the theatre. Yamawarani sadly died in Britain and was buried in the Eltham Parish Churchyard in London, aged only 19, in 1794. During their visit, they had sung an Aboriginal song accompanied by clapsticks at London's Mayfair. This performance was recorded by Edward Jones, a composer and bard to the Prince of Wales. Jones later published his written notes as a song of the natives of New South Wales. 
Bannalong, of course, returned to Australia, but we are left to ponder what he may have said or related to his family and community members on his return home. Back in Sydney, Governor Hunter gave him his official protection as an old friend and a fellow voyager. By the mid-19th century, many Aboriginal people were encouraged to play cricket on missions, reserves and country stock stations. Missionaries believed that such games, cricket in particular, made them more industrious and loyal. Cricket was widespread in Aboriginal communities of the time, with successful players and teams at missions including Penindi in South Australia, Corrandirk in Victoria in the 1870s and 1880s, Cumridge Gunja in New South Wales in the 1880s, New Norcia in Western Australia between 1880 and 1905, and Deebing Creek in Queensland from 1894 to 1906. One of the most significant sporting moments of this period was the highly successful Aboriginal cricket tour in 1868. An Aboriginal 11 was chosen to tour Britain under the captaincy of an Englishman, Charles Lawrence. The Aboriginal team were trained and coached by Lawrence for two months in the western districts of Victoria before the tour. And it was noted on their arrival that they were perfectly civilised and are quite familiar with the English language. Without question, the stars of this very good team were Johnny Muller and Johnny Cousins. Muller was afforded the tag of the Black WG after the renowned English cricketer W.G. Grace. Muller's statistics were impressive. In England, he played 43 matches, scoring 1,679 runs at an average of 22.5. One of the best bowlers in England at the time, George Tarrant, stated he had never bowled to a better batsman. The Aboriginal team played 47 matches throughout England over a period of six months, winning 14, losing 14 and drawing 19. The Aboriginal team also gave performances of spear and boomerang throwing to the delight of the English crowds. The Daily Telegraph reported, It is highly interesting and curious to see mixed in a friendly game on the most historically Saxon part of our island representatives of two races so far removed from each other as the modern Englishman and the Aboriginal Australian. Although several of them are native Bushmen and all are as black as night, these Indian fellows are to all intents and purposes clothed and in their right minds. (laughs) During the tour, one of the players, King Cole, sadly died of tuberculosis and he was also buried in London. At its conclusion, the team returned to Australia and disbanded. A few, like Johnny Muller, continued to play the game. Muller was employed by the Melbourne Cricket Club and represented Victoria against a touring English team in 1879, top scoring in the second innings. In the aftermath of the 1868 tour of Britain, the Central Board for Aborigines in Victoria ruled it would be illegal to remove any Aborigine from the colony of Victoria without the approval of a government minister from that point on. This effectively ended the involvement of Aboriginal people and the game. With greater segregation and less contact between Aborigines and Europeans at work, there were fewer opportunities and incentives for our people to continue playing cricket. One of the most inspiring Aboriginal visitors to Britain is unquestionably Anthony Martin Fernando. 
Fernando arrived in England in the late 19th century and over the next 40 years mounted a one-man protest campaign on the ill treatment of his people in Australia. He would parade up and down the street outside Australia House in London, speaking out on the genocide of his people back in Australia. His long grey beard damp with mist, his frail elderly frame wrapped in a large overcoat. Now, pinned to his coat were scores of small white toy skeletons, and he wore a placard proclaiming, this is all Australia has left of my people. He spoke regularly at Hyde Park Corner in London, and he was interned in Austria during World War I. In 1921, he was in Bern in Switzerland, seeking an audience with the Pope. He was trying to organise support for his suggestion that a certain district in northern Australia should be reserved for Aboriginal people under the supervision of a neutral mandatory power responsible to Britain. His attempt to interview the Pope failed as it was expressed that he did not have the necessary letters of introduction. He then petitioned the Swiss government to intervene in order to prevent the utter destruction of his race. He was in Italy in 1923, again protesting on the streets about the Aboriginal plight back in Australia, but was imprisoned by Mussolini's fascist government for several months before he was deported back to Britain. He was noted as a toy maker. He also worked for a couple of English barristers who supported him. In 1929, he gained international coverage when he appeared in the Old Bailey Courthouse in London on a charge of having threatened a white man with a gun. He was reprimanded for a month whilst the magistrate and the court ascertained the facts of the event and what could be done with him. The magistrate was influenced by the two barristers who knew him well and spoke of his good character. The judge, Sir Ernest Wilde, declined to imprison him and asked his two barrister friends to assist him. Fernando, for his part, had pleaded guilty to the charge of threatening one Philip Limber with intent to do him bodily harm after Limber had taunted him for being a black man. Fernando used the courtroom to vent his anger at the injustices against his people back in Australia and he stated he had witnessed white men go unpunished after murdering and ill-treating Aboriginal people. For this reason, he hated the British, declaring, I've been boycotted everywhere. Look at my rags. I cannot make ends meet. All you hear is go away, black man. It's all Tommy Rot to say we are savages. The white men have shot, slowly starved or hung, hanged us. I've pleaded the Aboriginal cause since 1897. After his acquittal, he worked for one of the barristers as a cook, but continued his agitation, and in 1938 was back in court for assaulting another man and was sentenced to three months' imprisonment. He later finished in an old people's home and died in 1949. This is clearly the first time an Aboriginal activist took his grievances to the heart of empire and made a public protest on his people's behalf. Very brave and courageous man. That was the uh, first part of the History Council of New South Wales annual history lecture delivered uh, by the University of Newcastle's Professor of Indigenous Education and Research, John Maynard. We're going to be hearing uh, the second part of that lecture right after this. Strong Voices. 
Yes, you're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. Just earlier we were hearing the uh, first part of the University of Newcastle's uh, Professor of Indigenous Education uh, and Research, John Maynard's uh, History Council of New South Wales annual history lecture. We're going to hear the second part of that lecture now. Wally MacArthur and Charles Perkins were amongst hundreds of Aboriginal kids removed from their families and institutionalised during the 1940s. Both Perkins and MacArthur would go on to be outstanding sports stars. Wally MacArthur should have represented Australia at both an Olympic and Commonwealth Games, but was overlooked. Disillusioned, he turned professional as a runner, then went to England and became recognised as the greatest rugby league winger in the world. Perkins, for his part, was a top soccer player and also spent time in Britain and was even offered a trial with Manchester United. As you can see, the Manchester United letter here um, with reference to Matt Busby, that uh, letter is with the kind courtesy of Eileen Perkins. MacArthur and Perkins would spend years together at the St Francis home in South Australia for Aboriginal boys during the 1940s. One pleasing aspect of the home was that they were encouraged to play sport, something many of the boys excelled with. MacArthur was regarded as the fastest teenager in the world when he was 19 after winning the Australian Under-19 Championship. But failure to gain selection to represent his country saw him turn professional. He was a real talent on a rugby league field and was the star of the South Australian competition playing for Semaphore. Wally had first been stationed in Western Sydney when he came down, he was a young boy, went to high school out in Western Sydney and that's where he was introduced to rugby league before he finished up at St Francis in South Australia. So he was a star player in the South Australian competition. I didn't even know that they were playing rugby league in South Australia, but apparently they were. He won the Best Player Award in 1953 and across three seasons amassed an amazing 822 points. The semaphore team was unbeaten through the 1950 and 1951 seasons. And he came to the notice of some ex-British players in Adelaide. Paul Quinn was a former Rockdale Hornets player back in England and he arranged for Wally to go to England and play for the Hornets. Now, he joined the Hornets on a four-year contract and was reported as being the first Aborigine to play in England. A report in the Yorkshire Evening News was glowing on the debut of MacArthur in England. He scored three tries against Whitehaven and the paper said he has the speed, the swerve and quick thinking of a born footballer. He was hailed as the black flash in the British press. MacArthur's debut even made news in Australian Federal Parliament. Australian Prime Minister Robert Menzies stated that the Australian government was taking a keen interest in Wally MacArthur. After only a handful of games in England, he was the most talked-of personality in English rugby league. In one match against St Helens, supporters of both sides cheered MacArthur for almost two minutes after he scored a brilliant solo try. From 1953 to 59, MacArthur played a total of 165 games for English clubs, Rockdale, Blackpool Borough, Salford and Workington Town. And his record of tries and goals for Rockdale still stands. He was selected to play in a rest of the world versus England match and scored four tries in the game. Running, though, remained Wally's greatest sporting love and he continued to run competitively in Britain when his football commitments allowed the time. In 1957, he was the North England Sprint Champion, winning both the 100 and 220-yard championships. 
He also won the 100-yard sprint final at the 1957 Highland Games, and he was introduced to members of the royal family who were spectators at the Games, including the Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. Wally would carry deep disappointment for the rest of his life at not being given the chance to run for his country. And he actually said the Commonwealth Games were in Wales in 1958, and he said the times that I ran were far superior to the Australian members of that team and even the ones that won the medals there. Wally MacArthur was longing for home at the end of the 1959 season, and after nearly seven years overseas, he applied to the National Rugby League body for a clearance to play back in Australia. His request was declined. He returned to Australia in 1959 and worked as a fitter and turner at Port Adelaide as a labourer and welder in the Wyala shipyards for more than 25 years. And he later worked as a ganger for the Australian National Railways, maintaining the Indian Pacific Line on the Nullarbor Plains. Tragically, in 1977, he was involved in an accident that left him with crippling injuries. In helping another worker to safety, he leapt from a railway cart to escape an oncoming train, but was struck suffering bone fractures in both legs and feet. He would remain for the rest of his life handicapped and need the aid of walking sticks to get around. He was unable to work again after the accident. MacArthur's sporting achievements were recognised with a place in the inaugural induction to the Aboriginal Islander Sports Hall of Fame in 1994. And he was also later named in the Australian Aboriginal Rugby League Team of the Century in 2008 and he died uh, in 2015. Looking back to the late 1950s when Wally was in England, he was actually joined by some of his old St Francis home friends, Jim Foster, Charlie Perkins, Johnny Moriarty also visited England, Gordon Briscoe. In England, it was a totally different social experience for these young men to back in Australia at that time. They could walk the street with a white girl. They were served in public venues, pubs, cafes and restaurants without question. And it was one of the first times they were treated with equality and their Aboriginality was not an issue. Charles Perkins, of course, was recognised as an outstanding soccer talent from a very young age. And he played first grade in Adelaide at just 15 years of age. He was voted South Australia's best player of the year and also represented his state as vice-captain. In 1957, he received an invitation for the English First Division club Everton to go over for a trial. Everton agreed to pay £60, or half Perkins' fare to England. Charlie Perkins was encouraged by friends to take the chance, as it would only broaden his knowledge of the world and would benefit him when he returned to Australia. Now, he faced enormous disadvantages when travelling to England, setting sail on an Italian liner in the cheapest class with little money and few clothes. The trip to Europe was a nightmare. He suffered severe seasickness and ate little. Disembarking in Genoa, he took a train to Paris, where his bag was stolen. And he arrived in London unshaven with only the clothes on his back and must have resembled a tramp to the Everton officials who were there to meet him. He was given only two weeks to get himself into shape for his trial and he received no encouragement from either the players or officials. Everton placed him in humble shared accommodation and despite a great desire to do well, Charlie Perkins understood he was at a serious disadvantage. 
all alone and in a totally foreign environment, it would have taken a full six months to get himself up to the level of these full-time professionals. The Everton players, for their part, gave him no support in their did their best to derail his opportunities of success. The pitches were completely different to those in Australia. Perkins recalled playing in one match, plodding through heavy mud six inches thick and trying to kick a ball. His legs felt like lead and he locked up in a cramp and he hobbled to the sideline. The Everton coach screamed at him, get back out there on the field and keep playing. Perkins was enraged and felt like ironing out the coach. Obviously, this venture was not going to work out and he quit Everton. Disheartened and homesick, Perkins often walked the Liverpool streets at night. He gained employment as a fitter at the Mersey shipyards. Then he looked for work further afield and he gained a job as a coal miner in Wigan. And he moved in with his old friend from San Francis home, Wally MacArthur. The mining community accepted Charlie Perkins as one of their own. And he was given a soccer opportunity with Bishop Auckland, then regarded as the best amateur team in Britain. Now fully fit and acclimatised, his performances drew high praise. Perkins played in a game against Oxford University, won by Bishop Auckland 1-0. During the game, he thought, how odd it was that here, me, an Aborigine, was playing soccer against all these university characters. It started to go through my mind. Well, I'd like to go to university one day. There on that Oxford soccer field, I begin to think, geez, it's lovely around here. <laughs> These blokes are going to university. I wonder if I could go to university. And as we know, Charlie did later on. Perkins' performances with Bishop Auckland were of such a high calibre that he earned attention of some first division clubs, including, as I said, the offer of a trial with Manchester United. This was the Manchester team that had gained worldwide fame as the Busby Babes. The team had been destroyed horrifically in an air crash in Munich the year before, and Mutt Busby was in the process of rebuilding his side. Unfortunately, because we will never know if he would have made it or not with Manchester United, Perkins, suffering acute homesickness, turned down the offer of a trial in 1959 and accepted a paid return ticket to Australia from the Adelaide Croatia Club. Now, despite the initial negative experiences and disappointments of Britain, Perkins could at the conclusion of his stay reflect, I've had a good time here. I've seen a lot of things, met a lot of people and found a lot of happiness. The English people in Wigan and Bishop Auckland or in England generally, I suppose, are wonderful. They're decent people and they give you a fair go. They treated me much better than I was ever treated back in Australia. Now I'm on my way back to my country, my people and our problems. Now Charlie Perkins on his return to Australia moved to Sydney and he played for the top Greek back club Panhellenic here in Sydney. He enrolled at the University of Sydney and in 1965 alongside a group of white university students took a bus on the Freedom Ride across New South Wales, exposing the shocking segregation, health and living conditions of Aboriginal people in New South Wales at that time. This trip saw him pass into Aboriginal political immortality. Now, he died in 2000. Ewan man Harry Penrith, better known as Burnham Burnham, was born at Wallaga Lakes on the south coast of New South Wales. Like many Aboriginal children of his time, he was taken from his family as a baby and became a member of the Stolen Generation. He was initially placed at the Bomaderry home on the south coast of New South Wales. At the age of 10, 
He was removed from the female-run Bomaderry home to the notorious Kinchula Boys' Home on the north coast of New South Wales under strict white male control. And me personally, I've interviewed a lot, over a lot of years a lot of those, well, the old men now that went through that experience of Kinchula, and believe me, they're some of the most shocking stories that one could ever listen to. Memories they would carry for the rest of their lives. Despite the horrors of the home, and there were beatings and terrible cruelty and sexual abuse of these kids in that space. Now, despite the horrors of the home, the boys were able to play sport. And Harry, from the outset, was an outstanding athlete, excelling in boxing, gymnastics, surfing and rugby league. His sporting prowess probably allowed him to stay on at Kempsey High School and complete his leaving certificate. He was, after all, the school's star player. And as undoubted, that's why they, the school fought to keep him in that school and allowed him to finish his high school. After leaving school in 1955, he moved to Sydney and he gained work and continued his sports career. He spent several seasons playing rugby union for the Parramatta first grade side and gained representative honours playing for New South Wales against Victoria. He is regarded as one of the great players who did not get the chance to play for his country. Um, he would spend 13 years working as a model, hard-working public servant, and he studied law at the University of Tasmania and was part of the movement to remove Truganini's remains from the Hobart Museum for reburial. In the late 1970s, he reinvented himself as Burnham Burnham, a warrior for peace and Aboriginal rights. And he went to England in 1988, the year of the bicentennial celebrations in Australia, and on the 26th of January, Australia Day, staged a counter-demonstration under the white cliffs of Dover. He planted the Aboriginal flag in the British soil and declared an offering to the British, I, Burnham Burnham, a nobleman of ancient Australia, do hereby take possession of England on behalf of the Aboriginal peoples. We wish no harm to England's native people. We are here to bring you good manners, refinement, and an opportunity to make a compartu, a fresh start. His words were certainly stated with comic mirth, but buried at their heart was the recognition of invasion, occupation, dispossession, cultural destruction of Aboriginal people in the aftermath of 1788. It was a powerful message that gained international coverage, and he uh, too, he sadly died in 1997. Now, in conclusion for me, history has always been about stories. And here tonight I've revealed some of these stories, some well-known and others unknown. I've always said that our history since 1788 is like a giant jigsaw puzzle with most of the pieces missing. I've been driven to fill some of these gaps in our history that have been missed, overlooked, forgotten and, dare I say, erased. Holding critical importance to me has been the need to provide and write history for our people that they can read, can enjoy and gain inspiration from, particularly our younger generations, and providing them with heroes and heroines of their own, which they can take great pride in. I additionally see the importance of educating the wider non-Indigenous community as what has happened historically to our people across the past 230-odd years. It is only when we have a balanced recognition of the past that we can finally join hands and walk together into the future. For all of our people here tonight and those people that support us 
stay strong. The struggle for Aboriginal rights goes on. Thank you very much. Yes, that was uh, John Maynard there, Professor of Indigenous Education and Research at the University of uh, Newcastle, delivering the History Council of New South Wales annual history lecture. Uh, also, thanks to the uh, ABC for providing that audio as well. Hi, guys. This is Dan Sutton, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Yes, that's right. You are listening to Strong Voices on Camera Radio. We're going to quickly head into our last story of the show as we report in our news. Uh, traditional owners... Uh, have uh, will be joining the Northern Territory Minister for uh, the the Federal Minister for Indigenous Affairs, uh, Ken White, uh, tomorrow on Wednesday to celebrate the return of uh, pastoral lease land, uh, 31 square kilometres of land at uh, Amaru Station, 325 kilometres northeast of Alice Springs, will be returned uh, to the Aliwal people on uh, Wednesday. Uh, the land handback will be marked with uh, traditional dancing as well as celebrations. Uh, I recently had an opportunity to uh, speak with uh, Michael Little, who's uh, with Desert Knowledge, but is also a part of the uh, COC delegates of the Eastern Sandover region where the uh, Amaru Station is located. Uh, here's our conversation that we had this morning. Michael, it's uh, always great to have you on Calm Radio. Same, likewise. Good to talk. Some exciting news recently uh, with a, a land handbag coming up uh, tomorrow. Celebrations obviously going to be taking place. Can you give us a, a bit of an understanding in terms of that history behind there? Because I understand, you know, there was there was a handbag that happened through Native Title. Obviously, now we're going through Freehold. But can you, can you talk to us a, a little bit about what's happening out there and, and how it's sort of come about? Well, from my memory and from my understanding, the government handing back land to the Aborigines of Aranga, um, otherwise the community named as Umbleruit, which sits on Amaru Station. Now, this is the interesting thing, and the thing that's a little bit grey is when our people say they're getting land back, well, they sit down for people who are knowledge knowledgeable around what are they giving back? We've never given it to them. We've never given it away in the first place. There has always been Peter and Whitey country in the Monday forever. Let always will remain Peter and Whitey country belonging to Harangarinyanam, Algerian, from the Dreamtime. Yeah, it's right smack in the middle of Amaru Station. And it's a little... A little matchbox, a little tiny bit of country that's surrounded by sites that people governed a long, long time ago, yeah, and they never stopped governing those things, land. Talk to us about the importance of that. Sometimes, you know, it still seems like there's that, you know, lack of understanding in terms of importance of, of country to, to, to the mob. The Amaru Station, and in the middle, is a tiny little matchbox and uh, it's called the community school in Blitterwich. And it belongs to the Pigeon and Whitey skin groups. Father, son, father, son, father, son. And uh, those people, like I just told you, they, that, that the law has remained since the and uh, is carried on like that. So when we have these, these big meetings revolving around the school, the store, 
the community centre and the other things like that, the stakeholder providers come in. What is really important that we have conversation here is about Aboriginal uh, Aboriginal constitution, and that is revolved around objects which is governed by skin name, and that comes from the dream time and passed down like that. So it's really confusing for deep-minded Aboriginal people with that relationship straight to the dream time to absorb all these changes and all these different names that come across us when we're trying to establish new owns this land. Yeah, and we see that a lot when it comes to things like native title, you know, mob having to, to jump through hoops, you know. Do you think those systems need to be more simplified and, and, and more tailored towards the mob? It, it seems like, you know, the, it's it's the mob who are having to go and, and, you know, do a lot of stuff for decades just to, you know, prove that that's their land. Yeah, oh, look, these things can be translated and interpreted and negotiated so we get an effective outcome. But we have to have words that can relate and interpret straight to easy words so people from the bush, black people from the bush, can understand what does this mean. Obviously, you you, you couldn't interpret and, and write the whole Australian constitution in a lower language. And... Uh, to make things understanding easy, that's what you'd have to do. But, uh, you know, the Aboriginal people from the bush think that the whole system's out of whack. It's mad. That's how people think in the bush. And uh, the, the the place I'm talking about is on the east end, and uh, we still have a very strong connection with the country, very strong, where owners and uh, managers are straight out stipulated and it cannot be contested by other ways of arguing the point as opposed to places like Alice Springs down south and in down where they have all these problems about governance and away all the time. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking your time out. Are you, are you going to be heading down tomorrow for, for the, the yeah, ceremony? It'll be fantastic. Mm, I imagine it will be. I imagine the people. Yeah, I imagine they're all going to be very happy there, yeah? Yeah, good. All right, thanks again, Michael. Have a good one. All right, Carl. See you, mate. Yes, that was Michael Little there discussing uh, the recent announcement of land being returned back uh, and it's uh, some of the land of the Amaru Station being handed back that's going to be a uh, freehold title there for the mob. That's going to conclude Strong Voices uh, for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Strong Voices. Get your